So if you have your Bible, we're going to begin reading in Psalm 67, verse 1. The Spirit writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, or the psalmist writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authorities of Jesus Christ himself are here speaking to us today. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his name, face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us now as we turn our attention to your word. We know that the enemy would seek to snatch the good word that we are studying together this morning. Father, we ask that as we give our attention to your word, that you would help us to think clearly about what we are doing as a congregation and sending out Stephen and Alexandra. And Father, as we think about that together, we pray that you would help us to clarify the gospel for one another and perhaps for those who might be among us who are not yet believers. That today, as we prepare to send Stephen and Alexandra, we would once again be reminded that even in our midst at times, there are people just like the people that they are going to be ministering to in Japan, people who have not yet trusted Jesus Christ by faith. And today, would you do the good work of redeeming grace and cause any who are here who are not yet believers to be born again? And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. In his book, Outliers, The Story of Success, Malcolm Gladwell tells the story of the Beatles, one of the most famous rock bands ever. And as he speaks of the Beatles, he highlights that John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr came to the United States in February of 1964, starting the so-called British invasion of the American music scene and putting out a string of hit records that transformed the face of popular music. The first interesting thing about the Beatles for Gladwell and for our purposes this morning is how they had already been together by the time they had reached the United States. Lennon and McCartney had first started playing together in 1957, seven years before they ever landed in America. Incidentally, the time that elapsed between their founding and arguably their greatest artistic achievement was 10 years later. If you look at it even more closely, over those long years, you will find a lot of preparation, preparation and experience that took place while in the 1960s, when they were just a struggling high school rock band, they were invited to play in Hamburg, Germany. Hamburg in those days did not have a rock and roll scene or very many clubs, says Philip Norman, who wrote the Beatles biography, Shout. It was, but there was one particular club where the owner, named Bruno, who was originally a fairground showman, thought that he might like to invite this band to come and play. He had the idea of bringing in rock groups to play in his various clubs. They had this formula. It was a huge, non-stop show, hour after hour after hour, with a lot of people all throughout the building constantly partying. And the bands that would play at that time would come and they would just be passing all of the traffic as they would be partying nonstop. Many of the bands that played in Hamburg were from Liverpool, Norman went on to say. It was an accident that Bruno actually ended up in London and met the Beatles. But when he happened to meet them, he invited them to come and he arranged for them to be able to come and to spend some time with him. They kept going back. But what was so special about their time in Hamburg? It wasn't that it paid very well. It didn't. It wasn't that the acoustics were great. It wasn't. It wasn't that their fans were particularly interested in hearing them. They didn't have fans, and nobody cared. There wasn't anything but one thing in particular, the sheer amount of time that the Beatles had to play together. Here's John Lennon in an interview after the Beatles disbanded talking about the band's performances during those years. We got better, and we got more confident. We couldn't help it with all of the experience playing all night long. It was handy for them to 
give us the opportunity, even though we were foreigners. We had to try even harder because we were foreigners. We had to put our heart and our soul into it, and we had to get ourselves over the hump. In Liverpool, we had only ever done one-hour sessions, and we just used to do our best numbers, the same ones, one at a time, over and over. In Hamburg, we had to play for eight hours, so we really had to find a new way of playing. Here is Pete Best, the Beatles' drummer, speaking about that time. Once the news got out about the fact that we were making a show and the club started packing us in, we had opportunities to play not only for eight hours at a time, but seven nights a week. At first, we played almost nonstop until 12.30 when it closed. But as we got better and the crowds got larger, we stayed until 2.30 most mornings. The Beatles ended up traveling to Hamburg five times between 1960 and the end of 1962. On the first trip, they played 106 nights, five or more hours a night. On their second trip, they played 92 times. On their third trip, they played 48 times for a total of 172 hours on stage. The last of their two gigs in Hamburg, they played for 90 hours. There was no good going on stage if we weren't prepared, but we went there and we learned how to be very good and keep people coming back. We learned not only how to be good, but we learned stamina. They had to learn an enormous amount of numbers, cover versions of everything you can think of, not just our own music, but rock and roll of all kinds and a bit of jazz too, so that we could be disciplined on stage and all the times while we were there. And we learned about the Beatles and the excellence that they achieved, and we recognized that to be a great musician and to be famous requires an extraordinary amount of practice and effort. But often, when we come to the topic of Christian mission, we think that somehow, simply because it's a Christian opportunity, that less excellence, less effort, less discipline is required. Similarly, the primary issue is not whether a first-year medical student should be practicing medicine, but whether they can practice medicine with any sort of effectiveness And we know that, of course, they can't because they don't know how. In most vocations, some degree of training is necessary and excellence is required to achieve. But for some reason, we tend to think of missions and Christian ministry as different than other vocations. Sure, doctors and dentists and mechanics and the Beatles need to prepare, but Christian missionaries, not so much. But friends, let me ask you, why not? When the aim of God's work for the world is so important. Psalm 67, I think, will help us with that today. As we see that the aim for God's work in the world is, first, that all people will come to know him and his saving ways. Second, that all people will praise him. Third, that all people will fear him. Notice first, The aim for God's work in the world is that all people will come to know his saving ways. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. The psalmist opens with a prayer that God would be, verse 1, gracious, bless, and cause the light of his face to shine on his people. The sequence of his prayer is actually similar to the blessing that Abraham received. And if you have a Bible and you're able to get there quickly, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 12. If you don't know where Genesis chapter 12 is, what I'd encourage you to do is reach underneath the seat in front of you, grab one of the guest cards, and just write Bible verses down on there and go back and look at them this afternoon. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now just turn a few pages over to Genesis 22. Verse 17. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
But as one commentator notes, it's not only Abraham's blessing that we find here in the psalm. It's actually the benediction that we find in the book of Numbers. If you know where the book of Numbers is, turn to Numbers chapter 6. Again, if you're a guest, write the references down. We're moving around more than we normally would on a Sunday morning. Numbers in particular, this is important for you to piece together. Numbers chapter 6, verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The psalmist's prayer recognizes that the well-being of God's people, from Abraham to Aaron, from the ancient world to the modern world, depends on God's favor upon them and toward them. But the psalmist doesn't merely want God's favor to be experienced by God's people in the land of Israel. So in verse 2, the psalmist states the reason he is asking for God's blessing. Psalm 67, verse 2. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. The psalmist wants God's goodness to resound through Israel, that it actually might echo through all of the nations. As the blessed people become a channel of blessing to the entire world. In other words, if God is present with his people, causing his face to shine upon him as he blesses them, Israel's influence will grow, and this, the psalmist prays, will actually result in other nations experiencing the goodness of God's ways as they come into contact with the way that God has revealed himself in Israel. And how has God revealed himself to the Israelites? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false testimony. You shall not covet. Not simply rules to obey, but blessings to the end of the earth. Then the psalmist prays, not only will God's ways be known, but his salvation will be known when his ways are known. Psalm 67, verse 2. Your saving power among all nations. The reference, verse 2, to God's ways points to God's character reflected in God's commandments, but also in God's actions. He is good. God is good in all that he does. And he has given us good instructions by which we should live our lives, but his saving power is not merely instructional. It is not simply content-based. It is deliverance, not only from wicked oppressors, but is deliverance from the wrath of God against human sin. So the verse just before the famous Ten Commandments that we just quoted a few moments ago, we find in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, saying this, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He redeems before he commands. And his decisive acts of redemption are actually the basis of the commands that he gives to his people. And like his ways, his salvation actually reveals something of his character. It teaches his people the kind of God that he is. He is the God who saves the weak, the broken, and as the Israelites learned when they were slaves in the land of Egypt, the enslaved. And he raises the weak and the broken and the enslaved up to proclaim the excellencies of his ways and the wonders of his saving power to the nations as the God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin even as he upholds justice. So later in Exodus 34 verse 6 we find the Lord describing himself this way. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Friend, if you're not a believer, I just want you to think about the way that God is revealing himself here. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, not a God of rules, a God with a list of things that you need to do, but a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity 
and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. But God's ways and saving power aren't confined to the book of Exodus, are they? The biblical story from Genesis to Revelation tells us of a God who actually created the world from nothing that he meant for it to be good and how mankind fell from sin because they loved their sin more than they loved the creator who had made them. But how God chose a special people for himself and he gave them his law, his ways, so that they might know him and walk in them. And how he loved those people that he gave that law to even when they walked away from him and disregarded his ways as they persisted in rebellion to his ways. And how he finally sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for them, to die in the place of them, to die not only the death that they deserve to die, but to die in their place so that they would not have to die and rise again so that they could live with him forever. Friends, the biblical story tells the gospel story, and the gospel story is not simply a list of laws and rules demanding that we pay our own way. The gospel story from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible, as it goes all the way to the ends of the earth, is a welcome of announcement of declaring to us that Jesus paid it all. It has a very specific content. God, through the perfect life and substitutionary atoning death of Jesus and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, rescues all people from the wrath of God into peace with him. And he gives them a promise, not only of restoration, but the full restoration of the entire created order, all to the praise of the glory of his grace. Perhaps now we can see why the psalmist prays for this to be known on earth among all nations. It is a message to be proclaimed to all peoples. And it is a message that is to be believed by all peoples. And friends, it is the singular point of the entire Bible. God has blessed his people that they would learn about this story so that they might come to a saving knowledge in relationship with him. Friend, perhaps you're here today and for the first time you're hearing this. Or perhaps you're here and it's the first time that you're actually understanding this. A lot like what Brian described to us as he recounted his journey. He was piecing together parts of the story and then one day all of the parts fell into place and he finally understood something that he did not uh, understand before. Though you might feel strange for not understanding it before, know this, that literally every person in the room who is a believer had the exact same experience as you. Every single person in this room at some point did not understand the gospel and then came to a saving knowledge of the gospel because God did the miraculous work of opening their ears to hear the beauty of the gospel and their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel and changing their dead heart to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether it was in this sanctuary or another sanctuary from another church or across the table from a friend or while riding home with a parent and discussing what they had learned earlier that day. A day came for every single Christian in this room when God opened their eyes to the truthfulness of the gospel story and God gave them a heart to believe the gospel story. And friend, we're here to tell you if you're not a Christian that that day can be today for you if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Friend, if you'd like to learn more about that, we would love to open the Bible with you. I'm going to be standing at those doors following the service. Come and say, I want to know more about the gospel message, but perhaps easier, just ask somebody who's probably seated beside you right now and say, I want to know the gospel story, and I want to learn what people like Brian learned. Will you open the Bible with me? It would be a privilege to open the Bible with you and to tell you more about Jesus Christ and what he has done for sinners like everybody in this room. From the very beginning of Psalm 67, it is clear that there's a progression of thought. God's grace to Israel will cause his way and salvation to be known among all nations, and that in turn will actually cause praise from God's people as the psalmist prays in verse 3. The aim of God's work for the world is that all people will come to know his saving ways Second, that all people will praise him. Look at verse three. Notice how many times, if you like to underline in your Bible, praise is mentioned. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. 
for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. The repetition of the request that the peoples might praise God in verse 3 actually emphasizes the fervor the psalmist feels about God's praise resounding out among all peoples. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you, all types of people from everywhere, from every tribe and tongue and nation, young and old, men and women, children and adults, all peoples that they might praise you. The psalmist wants God to be glorified by their praise. And in verse 4, he makes clear that he also wants the nations to be made glad in God. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. The gladness that gives rise to their singing and that ringing cry comes from verses 1 and 2. Knowing God's saving ways and knowing God's saving powers. Knowing what God has done for us and for our salvation results in praise. Knowing what he has revealed in the word naturally leads to the consequence of praising God for what he has revealed in the word. The gladness gives rise to worship. And why would the nations be glad and rejoice in God? Because his way and his saving power are for them too. His truth and his redemption are for all the peoples, the psalmist says. It's not just for Israel. So anybody in the room that is hung up on what is taking place specifically in Israel is missing the point of not only Psalm 67, but the entirety of the Bible. It has always been for the nations. It's important what's happening there, but it's important what's happening everywhere. God has an eye for all kinds of people. And you will see that if you just look around the room and see all different types of people even here today. His truth and his redemption are for all the peoples, not just Israel. And verse 4, his justice is upright and his guidance is reliable. For you judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations upon the earth. God will not only reveal his saving ways and his truth to them, but God will deliver them from injustice and oppression. He will not be like the rulers that they have in their nations. And he will do this in the lost, lostness and of they, they are experiencing in the trackless waste of this world that has no meaning apart from him, and he will be fair while he's doing it. He will be fair to people who were not his people, who have become his people by believing in his saving power. And he will lead people who were not his people, who have become his people, who now follow his ways through the maze of this life. The psalmist says... This will make the nations glad. This will make the nations rejoice. This will make the nations praise. A point that he makes very clear by bracketing his prayer for the gladness of the nations in verse 4 with the refrain of the people's praising God in verses 3 and 5. Look again. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Friends, praise is the inevitable consequence to God's grace and blessing and equitable governance and guidance sovereignly in this life. And praise completes the enjoyment of the people because there was nothing that we were made to enjoy more than God. And when we experience God, we encounter one who is more satisfying, more compelling, more capable, more impressive, more than anything that we have ever desired in this life, more satisfying than all of the desires that we have in this life, as Brian testified for us, no matter what type of desires that they are, that God is more complete and more capable of, of satisfying us than anything else in this life. And what that results in is gladness and praise. Gladness And what God has done for us results in praise among all of his peoples from knowing his saving ways and his salvation in which he has moved history to save our souls. Believers in particular, I want you to think about the day that you understood the gospel and the people who were around you that day who still do not understand the gospel and how God has literally orchestrated all of the events of your life in human history to bring you to understand the gospel. 
What that should do is humble us, and what that should do is drive us to take the gospel to the nations, and what that should cultivate in us is a heart of thankfulness and praise and worship for the God who loved us more than we loved ourselves or anything else in this life. Believer, are you struggling with motivation to share the gospel? Remember that you were lost, but now you're found. That you were blind, but now you see because God made you alive in Christ and made you aware of his saving ways. Are you struggling on Sundays to sing vigorously with the church on Sunday mornings? Consider afresh God's saving ways and that he has moved history to save your souls. The aim of God's work for the world is that all people will come to know his saving ways. And the aim for God's work for the world is that all peoples will praise him. And notice third, the aim for God's work for the world is that all peoples will fear him. Verse six and seven. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. God's presence with people who are glad in him and praise him will lead to the blessings of the covenant. And those blessings are epitomized in verse six where the blessings of God bring forth reverent fear and awe. So in verses six and seven, we find a summary of the whole psalm. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all or so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. When God blesses his people, he will be feared to the ends of the earth in the way that Psalm 67 has described. Feared because salvation from the judgment of God into fellowship with God is all of God. It is not of us. And that, friends, is good news indeed. Good news that gladdens the heart and inspires reverent fear and worship. What should inspire our worship and our evangelism and our serving and our pastoring, our ministry, our giving, is that we have become inheritors of this saving knowledge and we are now participants in God's redemptive plan for the world. What should cultivate joy in the believer amidst trial and suffering and sorrow, pain and conflict, racism and hate is that God has caused them to be born again and he is directing their life towards a greater reality, greater than anything that they would experience this side of eternity. What makes the heart glad is that people who were blind are now able to see, they're able to see that though they do not deserve to be loved, an infinite, almighty, majestic God has chosen to love them and to have fellowship with them. He has relationship with them, and they are now born again because of what he has done in the world through his Christ. Friends, the psalmist is telling us this inspires worship, and that worship leads to the nations hearing the gospel message and rejoicing with the people of God. Psalm 67 actually captures the, aims, the, uh, the aim of God's work for the world from the beginning of the Bible when he created it all the way to the end of the Bible when he makes all things new in the city of God. God's means means to bless the nations with the knowledge of his character and salvation that they might be glad in him, that they might praise him, that they might fear him with reverent awe. And he is now pursuing that purpose through the church until Jesus Christ returns and that purpose is realized. But in the meantime, we take the gospel to the ends of the earth because the psalmist helps us see that the aim of God's work for the world involves all nations. This is the missionary task. The aim of God's work for the world involves the nations. The missionary task is to go in Christ's authority as his ambassadors of his kingdom to communicate his message, his saving ways, and his saving power to the nations, particularly in an international context that crosses the barrier of language. And crossing that barrier often takes many years. And at this point, Matt Rhodes, the author of No Shortcut to Success, expects an objection from us because of the climate that we live in as evangelicals. Wait a second. Are you saying missionaries shouldn't try to share the good news about Jesus Christ until they reach a high level of language proficiency? He's not saying that. In fact, he's making a more startling claim. For all practical purposes... He says we simply cannot communicate the good news about Jesus Christ until we reach a high level of language ability. And what he's teaching us 
is that the missionary task often involves very normal things that don't seem super extraordinary to us, like learning a language and how to navigate a new city and how to pay your bills when you're in another country and how do you send things home and get it there on time or receive things from family so that it doesn't get destroyed in the mail. The missionary task often involves a lot of very ordinary things that take a long time to learn. He's telling us that it's not that they simply can't do it, it's that they shouldn't do it. It's not a matter of propriety, but of ability. Similarly, the primary issue is not whether a first-year medical student can be practicing medicine, as we said at the beginning of the sermon, but whether they can with any sort of effectiveness. In most vocations, we know that there is some degree of preparation or training that is necessary. But for some reason, church, when we think of sending missionaries, we either think it requires a super amount of spiritual Christianity or it requires no training at all. Sure, doctors and dentists, mechanics, and the Beatles need to do that. But we can send people who are less prepared, less trained, less efficient, or we only need to send people who have an extraordinary, unusual amount of Christian faith. And Matt Rhodes says not so. On one level, this might make sense to us because much of our training will occur on the job. And you can't replicate it until you get there, as anybody who's worked any type of career knows. But if we want to be capable missionaries and send capable missionaries, we need to master and they need to master a substantial amount of special skills. And in Scripture, God never works apart from capable human teachers when the good news of the gospel is spreading to new peoples. The Holy Spirit doesn't just explain Isaiah 53 directly to the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. He sends Philip, who we already know from the book of Acts, is somebody who is competent in the Scriptures. And the angel doesn't explain the gospel to Cornelius. He directs Cornelius to the apostle Peter, who had been trained by Jesus for three years. Missionaries should be ready to play a central role in the teaching of the gospel, and they must prepare themselves to fulfill that role as competently as they can, not to stoke their pride, but to show that even as they're dependent upon the spirit, that, that their task requires a level of excellence so that they can communicate the gospel clearly, effectively, passionately, so that people might know the saving ways of God and the saving power of God. Or in William Carey's language, we are the means through which that power flows, which means that cutting corners and hoping for God to mop up all of our mess is a really bad idea. And preparing to take the gospel to the nations will require a daunting level of commitment for anybody considering that call, as Stephen and Alexandra have already learned. So we have to allocate church an adequate amount of time and energy and resources to the task. Christ Church Westchester in particular, Stephen and Alexandra's sending to Japan is a prayer request eight years in the making. But let me give you a little more perspective as I was speaking with Stephen earlier this week. He's been in our church since 2015. He's been a member since 2017. He became an intern in 2019. He became an elder in 2022. And he's leaving for Japan in 2023. In the midst of that, Alexandra herself walked through similar steps, and they got married. The fields are white for the harvest, but it takes time to raise up a missionary so that they can go to a place and be effective, especially a place where less than 1% of the population is Christian where the country is the second largest unreached people group in the world. And most people in that country have never been to a church, they've never read a Bible, and they have no Christian friends. Where there is currently one church for every 16,700 people. And 60% of those churches are fewer than 30 people. And 70% of the pastors are over 50 years old. Jesus doesn't command his disciples to just go and baptize, he also commands them to go and to teach others to observe all that I've commanded you. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew 28.
Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now just as a, a quick highlight there, it is possible to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ and still doubt. They doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You cannot teach people all that Jesus has commanded if you do not know what Jesus has commanded. It is not enough to simply go and say, Jesus saves, if they don't know who Jesus is or how God saves people through Jesus or why they need to be saved by God through Jesus Christ. Everything Jesus said is a part of the message that we carry. And the salvation Jesus offered does more than simply cancel our guilt so that we can get to heaven when we die. Jesus delights to save people so they can walk with God and experience freedom from the power of sin. Brian testified to that this morning. Many of you have been able to stand up here at this platform and share God's good work of grace in your life. Certainly, it involves canceling our guilt, but we couldn't live and walk with God, and we couldn't live and walk with God if he didn't forgive us. But we also would have no idea how to walk in his saving ways apart from Jesus' teaching that instructs us on things like money and power and sexuality and other ethnicities and alcohol and the worth and value of women and parenting children and many other things. Sharing an abridged gospel can only result in people who have an abridged faith in Jesus Christ. And that means Christ Church Westchester. It is not simply enough for us to hurry up and send people out so that they might be won by the Jesus film or watching The Chosen. Tools that might be helpful in the larger discipleship process of evangelism and discipleship, but tools that do not share the full Christian message and story. Can the Lord use things like that to convert people? Sure, and of course he can, and he has. But in the discipling of new believers, we must share God's story from creation to redemption, about a God who made the world and everything in it, including the people who rebelled against him, and how those people, because of their rebellion, have been separated from him. And because of that separation, they are not able to have a relationship with God, and they are unable to make it to a heavenly reality. And the only way for them to be reconciled to God and make it to that heavenly reality is to turn away from sins that they don't know that they're committing and be aware of the sins that they don't know that they're committing, and place all of their trust in Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross for them by believing in him and his resurrection, they might have not only reconciliation with God, but hope of life everlasting because Jesus Christ not only saved them, but is now interceding for them at the right hand of God and is certainly praying there that they might make it faithfully to the end, among many other things. An abridged gospel will lead to an abridged Christianity, just like an assumed gospel will lead to an assumed Christianity. God uses all types of things, but we have to include the full range of biblical theology in our teaching. We must disciple people in their views and practices as it relates to anger and work, family and gender roles, conflict resolution, honor and reputation as they're going to an honor and shame culture a proper use of authority, and that takes time to learn. So what are we to do, church? The need is great. We need to hurry up by slowing down. Slowly and steadily raising up leaders to plant churches because the goal of missions is not simply to evangelize all people, but to make disciples who observe all that Christ has commanded the former can be accomplished by rapidly, uh, rapidly through individuals, but the latter, planting churches where people walk as disciples of Christ, takes time and requires community. And that means fulfilling the Great Commission necessitates church planting. Any effort in missions 
ought to be connected to the goal of reproducing local bodies of believers through the declaration and demonstration of the gospel. Mercy ministries are good and healthy, but they will remain stunted if our hearts are not made flesh through the power of the Spirit of God by the Word of God. And proclamation ministry is necessary, but intangible without the outworking of the Word in service to the felt needs of the community in the context of a local church. The goal, then, is to see communities of disciples raised up who both proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, and they actually display the fruit of that salvation through their love for one another as God has formed them into a new faith family. It is the role of every local church to obey the Great Commission for the sake of birthing new local churches locally and globally. So where do we begin? Christ Church in particular, five things that you need to know. I told you it's a very different type of sermon. First thing we need to do, we need to pray. Prayer does not replace our actions, it actually enlivens our actions. So as a church, we should pray for things like the members of our church. If you're a member of our church, you don't have a membership directory, you need to go find Melissa Medane. Melissa, will you raise your hand real quick? Melissa's down front, find her so that you can pray for the other members of the church. And as you're praying for them, pray that God would raise some people up to be missionaries and send them out. Second, the ministry and teaching of our church. And as we think of the ministry and teaching of our church, pray for the congregational gatherings that we have as a local church. And as you think of the congregational gatherings of our local church, pray for conversions in our church and through the members of our church. And as you think of the members and them being served in the church, pray for the elders of our church and new elders to be raised up and sent out, that we would have more elders than we need so that we can send them to places like Japan. And as you're thinking of us caring for our church, pray for servants in our church. Pray for deacons in our church so that they might be able to help us serve and that we might raise up more servants who might go and serve alongside people who are pastoring in places like Japan. While you're praying, pray for other churches. If you don't know churches in the Philadelphia Pastors Collective, that's a ministry that's birthed out of our church, speak with one of the pastoral assistants, and they'll just give you a list of names of churches in our area that are good, healthy, like-minded, evangelical churches. There's lots of churches in our area. Not all of them are good. Not all of them are healthy. Not all of them are evangelical. Just because you put church at the end of your name or the front of your name or in the middle of your name does not make you a good, healthy church. So speak to them. And encourage those churches by praying for those churches. Pray for partners in ministry. Pray for Nine Marks. Pray for Chester County Women's Services. That is now Chester County Connect Care. Pray for, had it, had it there. Pray for other ministries in our area. Pray for Young Life. Will Hall and uh, Lindsey Hall are serving the youth in our area. And if you've never prayed like this and don't know where to begin and all of that sounds daunting, here's the easiest thing you can do. Pay attention to the pastoral prayer in the service. It's a long portion of our service. We know that. But listen to the way that the pastors pray each and every week. And they basically do that same type of thing. And let that be an example to teach you how to pray for things beyond just our own individual personal needs. So we need to pray. We need to pray that God would continue to raise people up. Second, we need to plan. In all other major endeavors in life, whether we're running for office, training for a marathon, studying for a degree, playing a sport, practicing music, we plan. We set aside time, we set aside resources, but the sheer audacity of what we're hoping to do as Christ's ambassadors dwarfs all of those other goals. Planning takes time. Planning requires training. Planning requires foresight. I've been here for a little over eight years. This is the first time that we're commissioning a missionary from our church. It took time, it required training, and if we're to do it again and again and again, it will require foresight which make things like church our internship strategic. Dan Mason was an intern who became a pastoral assistant. Isaac Whitney was an intern who became a pastoral assistant. Mark Van Tynes was an intern who's now a deacon. Stephen was an intern who is now an elder and being sent out as a missionary. Adam Tardosky was an intern. He went to seminary. Now he's a pastoral resident at Emanuel Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Eugene's with us today. Eugene was an intern. We sent him to the Chicago course for preaching so that he could continue to learn and refine those skills. It takes time. That's not even all of the interns of the people that we've trained. Krista Mast served faithfully, and now she's helping disciple women in the context of our church. There's a variety of other people that we've invested in in these ways. It takes time, 
It requires training, and it requires foresight. And Christ Church Westchester, it makes our building and the purchasing of those homes beside us strategic. And here's why. As I speak to a generation of people who often devalue buildings and value expediency. This church was planted in the 1890s by people who were poorer than we are, who gave it great cost to themselves because they hoped that a gospel work would be born and bear fruit. It took about 120 years for that vision to be realized from their prayers to this moment because the church that was in here was not a faithful church. It is now a PCUSA church that does not believe any of the things that we would hold dear and say are true. So it took 120 years of giving, planning, foresight, and prayer for that to be realized in the context of this building. But what if those people 120 years ago would have said, you know what, that's a lot of money. You know, we're just, we're going to give it somewhere else and we're not going to do that. Where would you go to church today? What building would you be in? They gave to reality that they would never see. Our internship started in 2016. It took eight years to raise up one missionary. But with additional properties, an opportunity to place people in that, and have more people training alongside each other, though it's not going to microwave it and result in 50, 60, 70 missionaries, it might result in two, three, five, and shorter amounts of time or similar amounts of time. It is simply just too short-sighted to say, that's a lot that can be given somewhere else. I'm not going to do that because the reality is, is you can say that in every area of your life about every purchase that you've ever made for anything. The field is white for the harvest. So we need to speed up by slowing down and being strategic and prepare. And that will take time, require training, and require foresight. Third, you need to pay. If we invest this much time in raising up church leaders, should we not also take a great deal of care in investing in church planners and missionaries? Some kind of accountability is normal in the professional world. Why would we imagine that it's any different when we're giving our money to sending people overseas to share the gospel? Why wouldn't we care about what Stephen preaches and what he believes and how he's going to share the gospel and what Alexandra shares and what she believes? Of course we care because not only are we sending them out, but that's our investment. So we want to know, we want to be deeply invested in their lives and know what they think and how they're going to do it and when they're going to do it and where they're going to do it. We want our monies to be stewarded well for the advancement of the gospel. So rather than give to 40 missionaries a little bit, we want to invest a lot in a small pool of missionaries, now one. And that's true for all of our church partners as well. You want to know how we're spending our missiological money? Look at our budget, and one of the things you can do is you can pray through the budget. You can pray through the budget, and you can use that as a way to see how we're stewarding money in the context of our local church. To see, this is where our church has decided that it's worth giving to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, sometimes in areas that are beyond the lo- our ministry as a local church, like Chester County Connect Care and their work at 8 South Wayne Street at the Planned Parenthood. They do work that we don't do, so we invest in them because we believe in that work. So we give part of our monies to them just like we invest in Stephen and Alexandra. We need to invest and we need to pay, we need to give and steward those monies well in the context of the church for the advancement of the gospel. Fourth, we need to plant. Our goal should be to plant churches that are sufficiently mature to multiply and endure. One of the things that was said to me when I first came here was, we're a church plant planting churches, when are you gonna plant another church? And I'd been here weeks. We have not planted another church. Why? Because our church was not sufficiently mature and it could not endure. It takes time to strengthen a local church so that they can plant another church that can be mature and grow. Friends, if we want to do that, we have to plant churches, but that takes time and it means that we have to take that time to raise up leaders. And as we're raising them up, we're shepherding them so that they learn how to shepherd other people. So that 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, they will be able to teach others also. It's not enough to simply say, I have a desire to go plant a church. Great, go plant a church. But are they sufficiently capable of training, teaching, discipling, investing, and the lives of men and women in their care? And I think one of the great oversights of evangelicalism is how quickly we try to microwave this process and drop people in big areas like this or Philadelphia or New York or Chicago, and we don't really invest in them. So they go in there with little training and no money, and their churches struggle and die. 
We have to be patient. It took Jesus three years to train up the apostles. And what did Jesus not do? He did not emphasize simplicity. Stop teaching all that doctrine stuff. Just give them Jesus. And he did not emphasize rapidity. Just do it really fast. Which is why, church, we have the academy. And we have Sunday night theology. And we have Sunday morning services that value expositional preaching. Where you'll notice on our Sunday mornings, we give the same amount of time to the rest of the service as we do to the sermon or more to the sermon because we understand that that teaching is important in the life of our church, that other things can go away, but that cannot go away in the life of our church. That's why we have people discipling other people. That's why we have the deeper discussions class. That's why we have our Sunday evening service because we recognize that it takes time, and you can't simply say, get rid of all of the content and do it really fast. Our duty isn't to hurry up and replicate but to be careful and to prepare because the Apostle Paul taught this very point. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Him we proclaim. That's exactly what we want to do. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That, they, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You cannot present people mature in Christ if you're not willing to teach them all that is there in the content of the Scripture. And we shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking that that won't take time. Just like it took time to labor for a mature church that holds orthodox Christian doctrine and is not easily swayed by false teaching, full of individuals now who have renewed minds and are full of the Spirit, so that we might lead to the baptism of unbelievers who have become believers as we give them the initial sign of the covenant and the ongoing sign of the covenant as we affirm them at the Lord's table, all prepared to endure hardship and persecution for the sake of Christ, giving sacrificially of their time and monies to be able to evangelize the lost and build a healthy church. Because when the individuals are mature, the church is mature. Your Christianity is not primarily about you. That's the problem of America. You live in a world that tells you that your Christianity is about you. But Jesus and the Bible say your Christianity is not primarily about you. It's about a y'all, a collective unit of people who are learning to live together this side of eternity and work together for the advancement of the gospel, which leads to fifth, participate. Not every family can move to Japan, but I will say this, members of our church in particular, we would love for you to pray and consider if you should move to Japan and work alongside Stephen and Alexandra. Not every person can go, but we think that every person should consider, why would I not go and participate in this mission and learn a language and be there and help support simply by being present? One of your number one ministries, member of our church, is to actually be present, especially at the things that you have affirmed that you would be present at, Sunday morning gatherings and members meetings. You've committed to that. We never hid that from you. So come and be present at those things. Everybody's busy. But we also think that you should consider being present over there with them. Every member of our church should do that. One of the things that happens is, a friend of our church says, Mark Dever, is that sometimes when we pray to want to be missional, what we do is we pray for it, and then God raises up a young couple, and we say, we're really excited. We can now sacrifice them to the missionary gods, you know, and then we, none of us have to go. They'll go on our behalf. Why wouldn't you go? And why wouldn't you participate as well? And you can participate not only by going, but by learning. Maxwell, come up here. Living illustration. All right, we have things for you today. Maxwell's going to hold them up. Or I'll hold them up, and then I'll give them all back to Maxwell. All right, we have one copy of A Faithful Mission, the Southgate Fellowship. This is a mission statement about what to believe about orthodox missions because so many people are confused. Excellent resource. You read it out loud together today. It's in your program. One copy. Maxwell, here, I'm going to just hand things back to you. Excellent book, Evangelism by Max Stiles. One copy. The reason I'm giving this out is that missions is not any different than evangelism. It just happens to be in another country where you have to cross the barrier of language and living in a new place. Excellent book. One of the ways that our church will be strengthened is us becoming better evangelists. Get a copy of this book. These are free. You find Maxwell later. Evangelism and the sovereignty of God. You want to know how to understand a God who is sovereign and rules over all things, and yet we're still uh, to proclaim the gospel to all people? Excellent readable resource. It was actually a series of lectures for college students. We have a copy of that. We have... 20 copies of How a Good Desire for Church Growth Can Lead to Bad Ministry Practices. This is by Harshit Singh. He's a pastor in India. There's 20 one-page copies of that. 
There are 10, A Plea for Gospel Sanity and Missions by Aubrey Sequera, fellow former seminary student of mine. Excellent resource, 10 copies of that. We have three copies. I read this book this weekend. No Shortcut to Success, a manifesto for modern missions. We've been trying to give this book out. You need to read this book. I'm convinced that every single Christian should read this book because it recalibrates all of the wrong ways that we understand mission. We typically think, if I go to a lot of places, I'm going to be effective. But here's the fact. Short-term missionaries usually have zero success. I know I'm bursting a lot of bubbles. Short-term missionaries have zero success because they don't know the language or the culture of the people that they're ministering to. So the best type of short-term missions is to support the long-term work of missionaries that are there who know the language and the culture. And one of the ways that you can support them is by going, and perhaps in the future, that is childcare. But we can support them in lots of ways, being there to help them in their ministry. We have three copies of this book. Thank you, Maxwell. You can go back. Resources there for you. And then finally, a charge to Stephen and Alexandra in particular. Do not despise the days of small beginnings. And do not forsake the small tasks. I'm convinced as I've said around you, that our church does not yet realize how much they're going to miss you. You have been lurking in the background doing all types of things for us for many years, and we love you. We meet to part, and we part to meet until earthly labors are complete, but we are very proud of God's work of grace in your life. From the moment that I met you on that couch and you brought your spiral notebook and asked me a series of questions from 1 Corinthians, Stephen... To the moment when Alexandra was talking to me about baptism and she needed Krista to help her through the conversation because I intimidated her, to all of the other things that we've been able to celebrate in your life, not least of which is your marriage and God raising you up as an elder and helping serve and train men and women in the life of our church. We are proud of you. Be faithful to plod. Hurry up by slowing down. We are not going to be disappointed in it taking time. We are going to be patient with you as you have been patient with us. You have watched our church grow, and we want to help you grow. So as you grow and as you go, know that your church is with you. And I want to just read you a quote from this book, William Carey, saying this. Fruitful and faithful and fruitful missionaries don't need a spectacular or eye-catching ministry. Stephen, you need to remember that. As Carey wrote, I can plod. I can persevere to any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. So let us plot ahead, relying on the Lord. Missionaries tend to pride themselves on being doers rather than thinkers or making things happen. But it isn't only action that we need. We need steady action that is wisely directed. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. Indeed, wise missionaries may capture not only cities, but the nations. Let those of us who have been given grace for the task approach it wisely and professionally, knowing that it may cost to succeed, and to that end, we employ every human means within our grasp. Let's avoid shortcuts as we plod year after year, decade after decade. May God answer our prayers and empower our efforts. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Applaud. Be faithful. Put your hand to the plow and know that we are in your corner all the way. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your mercy towards us in Christ. And Father, we're thankful that on a day like this, we have the privilege to celebrate in a variety of different ways the conversion of the unconverted the sending of the converted to the nations, to be able to rejoice in the context of a congregational gathering and to be able to celebrate over a congregational meal. Father, we pray together and ask in Jesus' name that you would help us to have an eye for the nations, that we would be mindful that the aim of your work for the world has all nations in view. Every man, woman, and child in view. 
And Father, we pray that we will be a part of advancing your gospel to those people, that men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation would know the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, the saving ways of our God, and the saving power of his might. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.